0: A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The Illusionist by Mark McGuinness The theatre's gilded like a music box. The lights go dim and someone takes the stage. Good evening, everyone. I'm Arthur Fox. We know he's not. The real one's still backstage. The lights go dim and someone takes the stage. He looks the part. We gingerly applaud. We know he's not. The real one's still backstage. And here's the man you've all been waiting for. He looks the part. We gingerly applaud. The curtains part. The curtains close again. And here's the man you've all been waiting for. Thank you all for waiting in the rain. The curtains part. The curtains close again. We troop back slowly to our starting spots. Thank you all for waiting in the rain. Sorry, Arthur. The pillar blocked the shot. We troop back slowly to our starting spots. The cameraman walks sideways through the crowd. Sorry, Arthur. The pillar blocked the shot. I know. It feels a bit disjointed now. The cameraman walks sideways through the crowd. We part and close behind him like the sea. I know it feels a bit disjointed now. The whole thing will look seamless on TV. We part and close behind him like the sea. He reappears behind the left-hand door. The whole thing will look seamless on TV. I know the repetition's such a bore. He reappears behind the left-hand door. His eyes are covered, both hands firmly tied. I know the repetition's such a bore. Please take your time. Examine every side. His eyes are covered, both hands firmly tied. The dazzling spotlights keep us in the dark. Please take your time. Examine every side, and let the camera see it, clearly marked. The dazzling spotlights keep us in the dark. The volunteer does everything he's told. And let the camera see it, clearly marked. That's right, just there. Now cut along the fold. The volunteer does everything he's told. We half expect to see him levitate. That's right, just there. Now cut along the fold. The time has come, let's hope it's worth the wait. We half expect to see him levitate. A moment's pause that seems to take an age. The time has come, let's hope it's worth the wait. And look whose name is written on that page. A moment's pause that seems to take an age. He takes the sheet and holds it up as proof. And look whose name is written on that page. I'd like to ask you all to raise the roof. He takes the sheet and holds it up as proof, although the mechanism isn't clear. I'd like to ask you all to raise the roof. Please give a big hand to our volunteer. Although the mechanism isn't clear, we're still transfixed by what we've all just seen. Please give a big hand to our volunteer. Just wait until you see yourself on screen. We're still transfixed, by what we've all just seen. A show that never actually took place. Just wait until you see yourself on screen. The stops and starts will vanish without trace. A show that never actually took place will be assembled in the cutting room. The stops and starts will vanish without trace. When Charlie gives the signal, we'll resume. We'll be assembled in the cutting room. Good evening, everyone. I'm Arthur Fox. When Charlie gives the signal, we'll resume. The theatre's gilded like a music box. This is a poem that started off with one foot in reality and then went somewhere else the initial idea came from my experience of going to see the filming of a show by a well-known illusionist that was being recorded for tv and it was the first time i'd been to see a live tv show being recorded so that in itself felt a bit like going through the looking glass having grown up watching you know endless shows on tv and and particularly when i was younger having that That feeling of, wow, that looks amazing. Imagine what it would be like to be there in person, right in the middle of the audience, right up close to the stars. You know, there's an idealism about the way popular entertainment is presented on television. Everything looks sparkly and glossy and flawless. So even though I was a grown-up, it felt exciting to be there in person. And on one level, it was exactly what I was hoping for. You know, it was everything you'd expect from being part of a a smallish audience in a beautiful setting, up close and reasonably personal, with a big star. But as the evening went on, I gradually had the sense that there were two levels of illusions operating at the same time. So on the one level, there were the illusions that were part of the act, which were really impressive, and you know when you when you watch a, a magician on TV it's natural to think well if i was there in the audience i'd be scrutinizing every move of his to see what's really going on you wouldn't be able to fool me with clever tv angles and there were some things in that show that i remember thinking well that is seriously impressive <laughs> i mean i saw it with my own eyes and i don't believe my eyes so on that level we experienced the illusions that were advertised, if you like. But also, as the evening went on, I became aware of another level of illusion, which was the illusion of the show itself. Because of the logistics of filming something for TV, what actually happened in the venue wasn't exactly the same as the seamless performance that you would see on television as the finished product. So there were lots of stops and starts where the performers had to do things several times so that they could get the right take. So, for instance, you know, the illusionist walking out onto the stage for the first time. We, the audience, had to rehearse that before it actually happened. And so somebody walked out on stage and he said, Good evening, everyone. I'm, insert name of the illusionist. But he wasn't. And we knew he wasn't. And he knew that we knew he wasn't, but we all had to pretend that he was so that we could get warmed up and they could practice the camera angles so they could get just the right shot when the man himself came on. And even when he did, he had to do it maybe two or three times before the director was satisfied. And this went on throughout the show. We had to applaud the same thing several times or move back so that they could get the cameras in for a close-up of the stage action and then move forward again so that they could get a shot of us right up against the stage. So all the way through, there was this stop-start effect, a, a sense of two steps forward, one step back. So I gradually realized there were these two sets of illusions operating at once, the illusions on stage and the illusions of the stage, the illusion of the show itself. It, it was a bit like finding myself in a hall of mirrors where there were two sets of mirrors facing each other so the reflections multiplied off to infinity in both directions. And for me, this was a wonderfully disorienting and mind-expanding feeling. I had the sense that this feeling was suggesting something to me about the nature of illusions. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But even now, when I think about it, I get, you know, there's a spine-tingling quality to it. And I'm pretty sure it was during the actual show, or possibly very shortly afterwards, I had the feeling that this reminds me of something. And again, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. It was as if I recognised this experience this repetition, this two steps forward, one step back movement. It felt like deja vu. Or maybe I'd had a dream or a premonition of this. Then I realized it wasn't deja vu and it wasn't a premonition. It was like being inside a pantoum. What's a pantoum? It's a verse form. That ultimately originated in Malaysia and, like a lot of verse forms, came into English poetry via French poets who started using it in the 19th century. It can be as long as you want it to be, although most of them are fairly short. It's composed of quatrains, four-line stanzas, and every single line in the poem is repeated once in a set pattern. So the second and the fourth lines of every stanza become the first and the third lines of the next stanza. (laughs) And of course, I can hear you asking, but Mark, what about the first and third lines of the first stanza? Good question. They reappear in the final stanza, but they're flipped around so that the third line of the first stanza becomes the second line of the final stanza, and the poem begins and ends with the same line. If you're feeling a little confused at this point, don't worry, that's normal. It's actually the desired effect of the pantoum. It has a two-steps-forward, one-step-back motion that is disorienting and which I personally find delightfully beguiling and mesmerising. And when the poem ends with the same line it began with, there's a sense of finding yourself back where you started, but finding it somehow different than before. Okay, so there I was in the theatre, experiencing this two-steps-forward, one-step-back motion and realising I was basically inside a pantoum. It was quite an odd feeling, actually knowing that I was inside a poem as it was happening in real life. It was like I was in the poem's engine room and I could look up and see all the gears and levers and pistons moving around me. And of course, at that point, I knew I had to try and write the poem down. Now, the challenge in writing a pantoum is that you're taking the same lines and shuffling them together in different ways. And when you repeat the lines, there's always a risk that a line that made sense in one context will not make sense in the new context. Even on the level of basic grammar, you know, the words need to fit together without the joins showing. So you have to have a line that will work both ways. So there's quite a lot of adjustment and care required to get the lines just to fit together and play nicely alongside each other. And that's before you even think about the overall arc of the poem, whether it's telling a story or making an argument or expanding on a theme. It's a little bit like a house-buying chain. You know, it's all very well if the first few lines fit well together and get the poem off to a great start, But that's no use at all if you can't get the rest of it to follow on and link up properly. There's always the danger that you might have to give up and look somewhere else entirely. And, of course, if you really want to unlock the magic of the pantoum. It's no good just being competent so that the lines make sense and the story or the argument is easy to follow. You want those repetitions to start opening up and unlocking double meanings so that the same line means something different when it's repeated in a different context. And the more you can do that, the more the hall of mirrors of the pantoum opens up, and the more magical the poem becomes. So, when I was back home, after a discreet interval, I tried to follow Wordsworth's advice when he said that poetry takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquillity. I recollected as much as I could about the magic show and started writing it down and trying to assemble the pantomime. And while I was writing, I found a third level of illusion starting to open up. Because at the beginning, it felt like I was very close to the experience of that particular show I'd been to see. But the more I wrote, the further away I got from reality and the details of that particular show to the point where I realised it wasn't a documentary, realistic, reportage kind of poem. Instead of being a description of the real illusionist performing that particular show, the illusionist of the poem became a composite of all the illusionists, all the magicians I'd ever seen on TV and on stage, and even at parties and in books and movies. It was as if my illusionist, Arthur Fox, started grabbing phrases and gestures and tricks and techniques from all these other magicians and started taking on a life of his own. So, for instance, the line, And look whose name is written on that page. I'm pretty certain the actual performer didn't do a trick with somebody's name on the page and didn't say that line. But I've seen a version of that trick countless times. You know, when the magician asked the volunteer to think of somebody and don't tell me who it is, and then it turns out he's written it down. It's always a he, for some reason. He's written that exact name on the piece of paper three days before the show, when he was locked underwater in a submarine or or whatever, before he'd even met the volunteer. It was important to me to get my illusionist's name right. I knew he was a fox because that rhymed with music box, so the surname was obvious. Foxes, of course, are magical tricksters in mythology, and there was also a little bit of a suggestion or a whiff of Fantastic Mr Fox from the Roald Dahl story. You know, a very charming and charismatic character, but also a bit rakish and unsettling and not entirely respectable. So the surname was easy, but I I tried several different first names before I found one that felt like him. And as soon as I christened him Arthur, it was like he came to life, and I saw the glint in his eye and a little quiver of his moustache, as if he were almost winking at me, but not quite. And as the poem went on, I remembered watching magic shows on Saturday night as a kid. That sense of wonder... How do they do that? Is that possible? Is it really just a bunch of clever tricks? Could it be real magic? And of course, logically, we know it's not real. It's supposed to be trickery. It's all a clever game. But surely, even in the most hardened of hearts, there's the sense of wonder. You know, that the, the sense that we're seeing something we can't explain And maybe there's something genuinely inexplicable going on. And certainly as a child, there was a part of me that couldn't help hoping and wanting to believe that maybe there is some real magic at the heart of it all. It's as if illusions are something that we crave, or at least something that we can't avoid. I mean, most obviously, we find them in the entertainment industry. Saturday night magicians are, are really the updated version of the Victorian circus. You know, roll up, roll up, folks. And it's a bit tacky and a bit garish, but it's also obvious that we are being deliberately and willingly hoodwinked. But it's not just in the world of entertainment that we find this sense of illusion, of performance, of collusion in the fantasy. I mean, Think about the average business meeting, when everyone's being so polite and using all the right jargon, and there's that veneer of professionalism over everything. And yet we all know that there's an awful lot of stuff going on that is unspoken and unsaid, and there's more than a little smoke and mirrors in what's being presented to us as factual and obvious and incontrovertible. And certainly we can see that in politics, and anything to do with public life. Even something as mundane as going to a restaurant. I remember reading an article that that said that one reason why people, or British people at least, don't complain about bad service or bad food in a restaurant is that they don't want to break the spell. You know, the illusion that this is the perfect evening out, and the people here really care about us, and the food and the company are wonderful, and we're all having the best time. And we don't want to spoil it for everyone else, so we keep the illusion going. And there are plenty of other situations in our lives where we do this, where we're all making an effort to keep the illusion going, but without telling each other that we're making an effort to keep the illusion going. Because, of course, that would break the illusion, wouldn't it? It's almost as if life and illusions go hand in hand. And conversely, when we are truly disappointed, when we are truly devastated, when we are truly out of love with life, then the word we use is disillusioned. Which, if you think about it, suggests that when we are in love with life, when we are happy... When we are in the midst of it all, we must be illusioned, if that can be a verb. So, of course, from the perspective of disillusion, then what we're seeing when the spell is broken is the naked truth, the bare facts, the existential horror. But Arthur Fox would probably flip it around again and say, well, maybe illusions and life do go hand in hand, and maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe there's a playfulness, there is a joy, there is fun to be had in creating and maintaining an illusion, like playing a wonderful game together. And of course, the challenge for me as a poet is to create and maintain an illusion in words, to create my illusionist with nothing but words to hold him up. And I have to say, in this case, it wasn't easy. So, for instance, most pantoums are not as long as this one. They are typically quite a bit shorter. And I discovered one reason why, which is because it gets harder and harder to maintain the form as you go along. You know, that balance of having the repetition and having it make consistent grammatical sense and also narrative sense and also that icing on the cake, the magic of the double meaning, is there throughout as much as possible. And I lost that thread several times in the writing process. This was quite a few years ago, and I remember taking it to Mimi Calvati's workshop at the poetry school, and she made me rewrite it about three or four times. And she kept saying, this is going to be wonderful. And I'd be wincing at that future tense, going to be. And I'd say, you mean I'm not done yet? Oh, no. And... That meant I had to go back and unpick the whole thing. The analogy that comes to mind is unravelling the knitting, like when I've seen my mother or my daughter unravelling a load of knitting because it's not right, and then they've got to do it all over again. But I'm really glad Mimi did challenge me because eventually it came together. And sticking with the sartorial analogies, the feeling was like when you've got a zip that's snagged and all the teeth on either side are out of alignment, and you think it's broken forever, and it's really annoying because it's a favourite bag or coat or whatever. And then suddenly you manage to free it, and the zip moves easily again. And you get that glorious moment when you pull the zip, and the two halves come together, and it all zips up neatly. And that's what it felt like to finish this poem. So, I can testify that illusions take a lot of work to create and maintain and perform. And if illusions are the stuff of life, maybe that's why life can feel so hard at times. But maybe why it can also throw up moments of pure magic. The Illusionist by Mark McGuinness The theatre's gilded like a music box. The lights go dim and someone takes the stage. Good evening, everyone. I'm Arthur Fox. We know he's not. The real one's still backstage. The lights go dim and someone takes the stage. He looks the part. We gingerly applaud. We know he's not. The real one's still backstage. And here's the man you've all been waiting for. He looks the part. We gingerly applaud. The curtains part, the curtains close again. And here's the man you've all been waiting for. Thank you all for waiting in the rain. The curtains part, the curtains close again. We troop back slowly to our starting spots. Thank you all for waiting in the rain. Sorry, Arthur, the pillar blocked the shot. We troop back slowly to our starting spots. The cameraman walks sideways through the crowd. Sorry, Arthur. The pillar blocked the shot. I know. It feels a bit disjointed now. The cameraman walks sideways through the crowd. We part and close behind him like the sea. I know it feels a bit disjointed now. The whole thing will look seamless on TV. We part and close behind him like the sea. He reappears behind the left-hand door. The whole thing will look seamless on TV. I know the repetition's such a bore. He reappears behind the left-hand door. His eyes are covered, both hands firmly tied. I know the repetition's such a bore. Please take your time. Examine every side. His eyes are covered, both hands firmly tied. The dazzling spotlights keep us in the dark. Please take your time. Examine every side, and let the camera see it, clearly marked. The dazzling spotlights keep us in the dark. The volunteer does everything he's told. And let the camera see it, clearly marked. That's right, just there. Now cut along the fold. The volunteer does everything he's told. We half expect to see him levitate. That's right, just there. Now cut along the fold. The time has come. Let's hope it's worth the wait. We half expect to see him levitate. A moment's pause that seems to take an age. The time has come. Let's hope it's worth the wait. And look whose name is written on that page. A moment's pause that seems to take an age. He takes the sheet and holds it up as proof. And look whose name is written on that page. I'd like to ask you all to raise the roof. He takes the sheet and holds it up as proof, although the mechanism isn't clear. I'd like to ask you all to raise the roof. Please give a big hand to our volunteer. Although the mechanism isn't clear, we're still transfixed by what we've all just seen. Please give a big hand to our volunteer. Just wait until you see yourself on screen. We're still transfixed by what we've all just seen. A show that never actually took place. Just wait until you see yourself on screen. The stops and starts will vanish without trace. A show that never actually took place will be assembled in the cutting room. The stops and starts will vanish without trace. When Charlie gives the signal, we'll resume. We'll be assembled in the cutting room. Good evening, everyone. I'm Arthur Fox. When Charlie gives the signal, we'll resume. The theatre's gilded like a music box. The Illusionist by Mark McGuinness, that's me, was first published in The Rialto, issue number 80. I'm a poet based in Bristol in the UK. My poems have appeared in various magazines, including Anthropocene, Brittle Star, Magma, Oxford Poetry, The Rialto and Stand. My competition awards include third prize in the Stephen Spender Prize for 2016 and a commendation in the 2021 Ambit Poetry Competition. I am the host of a poetry podcast called A Mouthful of Air. My poetry website is markmcGuinness.com. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at a mouthful of subscribe If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at a mouthful of air.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.